All right, go ahead and grab a Bible and join me in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. Right after the Pentateuch, you get into Joshua and then Judges. Judges 6, I'm going to read 1 through 27. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but follow along or listen. And I want to make sure you have context for that. Judges 6, 1 through 27. These are the words of God. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and in the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Verse 7, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out, of, out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your repressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord came and said unto the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, um, um, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, O oh, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring, you, bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Verse 19, then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out 
the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace, and to this day is still in Ophrah of the Abazarites. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, or Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our gracious God, we are thankful to you this evening that that you have assembled us together as your people for your great purpose of the kingdom of God. We rejoice that we get to participate in this kingdom because of what your son has done in and for us. We come before you now to open up your word and be challenged by what we find in it. So help us, Spirit, to learn, to be edified, and to be sent back out into the world to make disciples. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight's the last message in the Politics of Humanism series when we spent nine weeks examining the various ways that humanism has wreaked havoc in history and in our time today. And those critiques are obviously going to be ongoing because this is a war. It's a war. So we aren't finished um, we aren't finished with our lamenting over the problems of humanism and finished with our attempts at correcting them simply because we talked about it once and now we're done. We're, we're not going to approach this like Sanctity of Life Sunday. This is a war that we will continue to fight until humanism is put underneath the feet of King Jesus. So we must be aware of it we must be well-versed in it, thus proving ourselves capable of defeating it. And we must have the vision as redeemed men, women, and children to actually fight against it. So we've been talking about the politics of humanism and examining sort of the ideologies that are there. And then tonight, we're calling this kingdom the vision of redeemed man. So no more talk of the fallen man. We've lamented that enough. Let's talk about the redeemed man and what we are called to do. So the war against humanism goes back to the very beginning when Adam and Eve themselves decided to determine to determine for themselves that which is good and evil. That's Genesis 3, verse 5. When Hebrews talks about maturity, which it does on a couple of occasions, the writer is talking about theonomy, the ability to discern between good and evil is a mark of maturity, and that maturity itself, that discerning, is worked out in how we deal with autonomy, self-law, which is the humanist lust. So we 
deal with autonomy, the problem of self-law, with theonomy, the beauty of God's law. When God's, God's law is the antidote to man's law. We know that here. I don't think I'd have to convince anyone in here of that. Which means, though, that at the core of this theonomic vision is our desire to see God exalted over man, not man over God. So that's the heart of the theonomic vision. The, the kingdom vision of a redeemed man. The heart of it is to see God be exalted and honored over man, not man over God. I remarked to Jordan the other night at the Christmas parade downtown when the public school band was marching down playing Joy to the World. And, and I thought, man, great song. We love that song here because it's totally, you know, dead post mail. But... What I commented to him was, why is it that many Christians would have seen that and thought, well, that's a cultural victory right there. They're playing joy to the world right down Main Street. Because we've, we've compromised. We think that that's like this huge win, when in reality, we'd rather abolish the government schools and do something different. <laughs> that's discerning. That's theonomy versus autonomy. God's law versus man's law. So we want God to be exalted over man, not man over God. Now this obviously has massive implications as we'll see shortly, but I want to show you from this passage, this one particular passage, how this works out. So look with me at Judges 6 and we'll go from there. Now just to give you like a quick contextual reminder so you know, Israel is now in the land, the land God had promised, but the enemies of God are not all defeated. That's a whole sermon in itself. They're in the land, but not all the enemies of God are defeated. So we're, we're compromised already. Joshua has died. The fearless leader who took over for Moses took them into the land, defeated some of the enemies, but now he has died. Um, and <laughs> coincidentally, uh, providentially, we might say, uh, Joshua has died, but the people then stop following Yahweh. They stop worshiping the Lord God. Because of their obstinance, God brought repeated covenantal judgment to them. Judges 2.1 says this, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Baals. They broke covenant with God. And they worshipped idols in his place. So God, in response, sent judges to deliver them into the hands of those who were plundering them. That's um, chapter 2, verse 16. In other words, we have this theme, this repeated theme in Judges, which dates back to the beginning of time. We have this covenant sin, not just one guy who sinned, although we have that with the sin of Achan, right, and how that messed with the whole thing. But we have covenantal sin, a rebellion against God, and then we have this redemption where God steps in, and with that we have this deliverance. So this is just this constant cycle in the book of Judges. Um, someday we'll preach through it. But, but, but that's sort of the nature of human history, really, if you think about it. So for us, the question is, how did, how did Israel respond when people like Othniel and even Deborah were raised up as judges, as anointed Messiah figures to judge Israel, to lead Israel out of sin and into, um, into sanctification, into glory? Well, Judges 2.17 says this, yet they did not listen to their judges. 
For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. So the next verse in Judges 2.18 tells us that God was moved. God was moved by, to pity by their groaning because of those who were oppressing Israel. So in response then, he would anoint this Messiah figure to, to deliver Israel. That's the pattern. And so the cycle would continue. One judge is raised up. They die. Israel plummets. Another judge is raised up. So there's only one Messiah who can actually deal with that. But these, these men, and oftentimes women like Deborah, were raised up to, to deliver Israel. But what happened when the judge died? Well, Judges 2.19 tells us, But it came about when the judge died that they would turn their back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Could we have not read that this morning? <laughs> their stubborn ways. We, we call it a mistake. We call it a, a, an oopsie-daisy, a lapse, um, just a little white lie or just a, a little fudging of the truth. Stubborn ways. See, there's a covenantal reminder of what God has done. Then there's sin. Then there's redemption and deliverance. And then there's a covenant reminder and then there's sin and then there's redemption and deliverance. And this is the perpetuation of the cycle. And this is where we find Gideon's story. This time it was focused on the Midianites. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham, no less. The reason I chose this passage is because Baalism, Baalism is the humanist religion which expresses itself in terms of statism. Baalism is the humanist religion which expresses itself in statism, which statism, as we've covered for nine weeks now, is the absolute and tyrannical governance and rule of man over other men. An absolute rule, an absolute governance of man over other men. That's what you get when you don't worship God. You have man ruling over you, and he is a cruel taskmaster. See, this, this forceful humanist rule, we say, is wicked and unrighteous. And, and I think this is partly maybe what Jesus had in mind, if you recall, when he said um, about Gentiles who lord it over others. That's the default humanist position, lording it over their constituents. So Baalism is statism, and statism is the rotten fruit of the humanist religion. That's what you get. So it's fitting that we would look at judges to see how to best combat it. So let's quickly just sort of summarize. I'm not going to read it all again, but I'm going to summarize, and you can sort of track where we're at as we go. In Judges 6, 1 through 10, we get a glimpse of what's going on. The central sin in Israel was their worship of Baal, and because of their apostasy, Israel, we see, is on the run. They're on the run. They were oppressed for seven years, verse 1 says. Which, by the way, in the Bible, obviously, that's the number of completion. Seven years. So, so translate this for a second. We know Gideon's coming, right? God's going to choose Gideon. This 
Seven years, this week is now over. The eighth day now comes when Gideon is resurrected from the valley of dry bones, given God's spirit, and he will now lead the way as a Messiah. Note here in verse 1 that the Lord, quote, gave Israel into the hands of the Midianites. Let me tell you something right now. We can talk about statism, injustice in the streets, uh, the police state, abortion on demand, this is happening is because the Lord is letting it and making it happen. We're Calvinists, so we, we see God's hand in everything, not just first causes, but secondary causes, the Westminster Confession says. So we, 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 we believe that. The Lord is giving America into the hands of the humanists because of our sin. See, the, the humanists have taken over because... God is using them to bring judgment to Israel for their apostasy. And we can rail on Planned Parenthood all we want, and we should. But where's the sin? It's in the church. So that, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because of their idolatry, they were forced into caves, which is a sign of cursedness. It's not a blessing to go to a cave. You are going to a cave because you are on the run, which David experienced on a few occasions. See, Israel, remember, they were supposed to be in the land, right? Israel was on the fringes of the land instead of dwelling in the land. And now, because of their sin, food, even food, had been hard to come by. It was, it was bad enough that the Midianites were being a bunch of big meanieheads. <laughs> They were oppressing them, but then the text says that the Amalekites came along too. Just tells you how bad it really is. Do you remember Moses defeated the Amalekites when his brothers held his arms up and they won the battle? Well, they're back. <laughs> they're back. And that's in verse 3. Verse 6 tells us that Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. We are not yet that low. The church in America, we're not, we're not that low yet. There's going to be a lot more. There's going to be a lot more. Until repentance happens far and wide, there's going to be a lot more lowering to go, if you will. See, they cry out to God. They cry out to God, but deliverance, deliverance doesn't happen j just right away at the snap of a finger. God's timing is God's prerogative. So first, notice in the, in the text there, where is it? Verse 8. God sends a prophet, and this prophet brings judicial charges against Israel. This is an act of grace. It's an act of grace and mercy, though we don't always see it that way. See, God's first act of deliverance here is a covenantal lawsuit. It's a lawsuit. See, before Christ went to the, to the cross to atone for sinners and be raised for our justification, he brought a covenantal lawsuit to Israel, and we call that the Olivet Discourse. So because of this, repentance is now put on the table and it's put on the table for examination. What are we going to do? Does Israel want to do the hard work of swallowing her pride, abandoning their church programs? They wanna, they're going to abandon all the, the fluff, swallow their pride, and turn to God? Or are they just going to be sad just enough? Sad just enough 
to be concerned about their circumstances. See, the prophet explains that it is God who has delivered in the past. I'm the one that brought you out of slavery, he says. And it's God who can deliver now. God is able to save. Are they willing to repent? That's the issue. See, God's protection was removed because of their sin. The question is, are they going to deal with it? See, it's interesting language that's used in verse 10. I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. You shouldn't fear, but you haven't obeyed me. You haven't obeyed. See, when God delivers, he has the right to rule over them. As deliverer, he is the ruler. If God's going to save, he's going to rule. If God does the work of salvation and deliverance, he's going to rule. He's going to govern. And that's the other reason why today the church is not in a repentance mode, because we don't want his rule. We're scared of it. We explain God's law away. We explain all this stuff around. Jesus, there's there's neutral territory out there. We just can't touch it. We got to leave it alone. No, if God's going to save, he's going to rule. The two go hand in hand. That's why there's no crown without a cross, right? Cross and crown. The lawsuit is, is now very clear. The oppression, the oppression isn't the problem. Their idolatry is the problem. The, the problem isn't Planned Parenthood. It's the church's lack of, of repentance. So what happens next? As the story goes on, God chooses Gideon, and he says that he is with him. It's Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. Gideon responds to this promise by faith, and then he prepares a banquet on minimal food. Remember, food was hard to come by at this point. It was in short supply. In fact, the text says Gideon was thrashing wheat in the wine press because it's easier to hide, and there wasn't much of it. See, Gideon prepares food for a king. What does he prepare? Bread and wine. A meal that's fit for a king. And the angel of the Lord comes. The angel of the Lord consumes the food. There's fire that comes up. When God eats, there's fire. And this ritual is a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of communion with God. The the Lord looks upon Gideon and literally turns to him in verse 14. God turns to him, which means now the fellowship, now the relationship, now the communion is restored. Fellowship with God is now the fruit of repentance in Gideon's life. He turned in faith. God brought him near and restored the relationship. And then there's another promise. God gives Gideon the strength to carry out the task before him. There's strength for the repentant. There's strength to carry it out. What does he do? Well, he fights He's to fight by faith against the humanists who've taken over the headhouse. There's something to do. He didn't retreat and have his own, you know, little shindig in the in the in the cave. He's to go to war. Gideon is sent to destroy. What is he sent to destroy? The altar of Baal. And Asherah, by the way, was the wife of Baal. So there's an altar of Baal, and then there would have been a pole next to it, Asherah pole. Isn't that a cute couple? Look at those idols. See, he's to go to war. 
to destroy the altar of Baal, to destroy the Asherah pole. This is a sign of reformation. But I want you to notice something. It's a sign of reformation, but where, does he, where is he told to go? His hometown. Go to your father's house. Interestingly enough, this, this altar in this pole belonged to his father, Joash. Like, notice, Gideon was raised in a home that worshipped Baal. He probably went to public school to boot. <laughs> See, repentance, repentance had to start with Gideon, and it had to include his family. This is where Christian reconstruction begins. So Gideon, he does this by night because he fears the daytime, which, you know, we're not told if that was wrong or right, but it is what it is. And he does it by night. The people then wake up and they find out the next day, whoa, something's missing. Our gods are gone. What happened? And then somebody tattles on Gideon and Gideon is now brought forward. <laughs> they want him dead. I didn't read the rest of it, but they want him dead. But his father, Joash, he comes along and thinks for a second, well, hold on. If Baal is a true god, he'll probably be able to defend himself. I mean, if he's a real god, he can vindicate himself here. So Baal is given 24 hours to defend himself. Of course, he can't do it because he's a dumb idol. And so consequently, the Reformation then begins to sweep across the land. So a quick couple of observations. One, Gideon is replacing his father who was steeped in sin. Gideon was replacing his father who was steeped in sin. Who else did that? Jesus Christ, who replaced his father Adam, who was steeped in sin. He's the son of Adam. The other theme present here is that the younger son replaces the older, which is all throughout the, throughout the Bible. Right? Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn. Isaac, the second. Jesus is the younger brother who comes to append Adam's failure as the older brother. See, Gideon, Gideon was the youngest in his family, in the tribe that was least of all the tribes. He even says that to the, to the prophet. Look, I'm the youngest, and we're in the tribe of Manasseh. In case you didn't know, we're not that great. We're not that prominent. So what do we do? What, how am I supposed to, to work? How could God use me of all people? Well, that's the mystery of the kingdom of God, isn't it? See, the story here is all about Christian reconstruction. It's about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being the vision of a redeemed man. A man who is restored to fellowship with God. It's about God's covenant people doing battle against the idolatry of humanism and statism. And if we stop and we consider for a minute our current situation here in the West, is this not a fitting story? The church of Jesus, the ecclesia of God, is currently in a heap of trouble. We are in a heap of trouble. Many of our key social functions have been commandeered by the humanists, and we've let them have it. We've let them have these things. Baalism has just run amok. Think about it. Universities like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, founded by Christians, was a bastion of hope for centuries, for, for years, for the gospel. They have been taken over by God-hating statists. 
Compulsory taxation confronts us at every turn. You work one quarter of a year to pay the government. Humanist licentiousness pervades our media and is paraded in the streets. Now you can't even watch a Thanksgiving Day parade without it being in your face. Unjust policies like the drug war perpetuate the oppression of minorities. We've talked about these things. Wars of aggression and, and what we call foreign military meddling continues because billions of dollars are poured into the ministry, or excuse me, well, that's the same thing, the military-industrial complex. See, from beginning to end, start to finish, top to bottom, our nation refuses to acknowledge the lordship of Christ, and Christianity continues to be pushed to the margins. And what does the church do about it? Well, we saw this morning. Do they, do, they, do they repent? Do they gladly repent and have the courage like Gideon and Jesus? No. No, they do nothing. Not, not really a single thing. By and large, our churches are impotent to do anything anyway because we theologically castrated ourselves. So let's talk about that. Premillennialists have, have been arguing that it's only going to get worse, but don't worry, Jesus will come and whisk us away. Amillennialists argue that things are going to get worse, but don't you worry, you're saved and you'll get through it. Attaboy. All the while perpetuating this, you know, two-kingdom theology where we can't even touch the topic of the magistrate. Meanwhile, abortion on demand runs unhindered because we're too busy preaching the gospel in the four walls of our church building. I have to say this now. I didn't plan to say it, but this morning at the church repent there in Columbia. The pastor, what was the pastor preaching on? Grace. The same thing he was preaching on three weeks ago when we were there. You know what grace is? You ever heard of grace? And I tell you what, almost every single one walked out looked like they had heard a sermon on hell. See, because God is not a liar, we should take him at his word. One, and one thing he has told us is that we're supposed to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, which means that, that this prayer is a prayer he intends to answer. And, and Jesus also intends for the nations to be discipled. Remember, God is not a liar. But for the most part... The church believes God to be a liar because she refuses to believe these words. She refuses to believe the truth about Christ reconciling all things, whether on heaven or earth, through the blood of his Son. She refuses to believe that Christ has bound the strong man to Satan. She refuses to believe that the vision of the redeemed man is the kingdom of God here on earth. See, the, the, the church, we've said this several times, the church in America has sadly, for the most part, rejected the lordship of Christ and instead embraced the lordship of the state. And we wonder why things are the way they are. Like, like Israel, we will whine and complain about the Midianite gay agenda. Ah, oh, it's terrible. We'll whine and complain that the Canaanites, they don't say Merry Christmas like they used to. We'll whine and complain about the Jebusite and the Hittite Democrats that were elected 
but we're too stupid to see that it's our sin and our idolatry that's perpetuating the nonsense. We'll whine and we'll complain. We will bellyache till the cows come home. But do, do you see it, though? See, we, we, we cry out to the Savior state instead of King Jesus. We, 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 we cry out to our church membership to be this salve and this balm for our lazy Christian witness. How many people ask today, are you a member of this church? Said, yes, I'm a member of the Bride of Christ. See, we cry out to everyone and everything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And we now find ourselves right now up against the ropes and we're bleeding out pretty badly. See, at what point are we going to wake up and see this covenantal lawsuit? At what point are we going to cast aside the idols of Baal? At what point are we going to stop sacrificing our children on the altar of the public schools? At what point are we going to tear down the Asherah poles and the idols that we've erected and turn in repentance towards God so that we can be healed and begin the work of reconstruction? Now is the time. And the church of Jesus Christ is where it begins. So we moved here a little over a year ago. Moved here over, over a year ago. And I came because I wanted to build something. I wanted to build something. To, 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 to publicly gather together to celebrate the dominion that God has given us the six days before. To labor together, to, to come to him and to come to him together as God's people, to, to thank him for his grace and ask for more of it as we grab our swords and our hammers and we go to battle. And I'm pretty sure that's, that's why you came. That's why you're here. You, to some degree or another, caught that vision, that passion. We, we came to Warrington because it's strategic and it's feasible. Babylon's 40 miles down the road. There's strategy it's feasible, and so that's cr crossing crown. We, we have the opportunity to take the land that's set before us, but only if we're going to repent for our selfishness. Only if we're going to be the first in line, not to bellyache about the Midianites, but to say, God, we have sinned against you. And there, all of us in this room have vestiges of inconsistency. We do. And we have to deal with that. See, only when we're willing to die to ourselves and start laboring with each other will any of this happen. You see, <clears throat> we have to know the gospel. I'm going to tell you my definition of the gospel. I'm going to say it twice because I want you to hear it and believe it and let it sink down. The gospel is the royal announcement that a new king has been established and the terms and conditions of his covenant treaty are now available and being enforced. This whole truncated Jesus died for me has got to stop. This is, that's the milk of the word. That's the foundation. And it's a beautiful foundation and we celebrate that. But to just simply say the gospel is, well, Jesus died for me, that you're only telling part of it. The gospel is an announcement. It is a royal announcement that a new king has been established and the terms and conditions of his covenant treaty with man are now available. They're on the table and they are now being enforced. This, this gospel of the kingdom is our vision. That's our passion. That's what we live for. It's where history is headed. 
See, don't, don't mistake this, because when we think about our battle against the humanists, <laughs> and we are a small number who care to even fight the fight, most of them are fine. Well, we're in a cave. We'll just put some paint on it. It'll be great. And we, we think that these are the, these small victories, like Joy to the World being blared down the street by the public school marching band, which they did a good job. Okay, great. Glad my tax dollars could help that. But that's not it. <laughs> that's not the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's not the vision. God is, listen, God is always, God is always, without exception, the creator ruler. And man, without exception, is the ruled creature. So this, that principle is ground zero for the war against humanism. And what we must have is a strategy to seed this into the culture. This is where it's going to get practical for a minute. We have to seed this into the culture. We can't just say it here, and we can't just think it, and we can't just cozy up by the fire, read Rush Uni, and think, well, all right, let's charge hell, and, and no, you know, actually charge hell. We have to have a strategy. So I've been working on something. It's not ready yet, but I wanted to share it with you. And... I didn't think I couldn't, you know, you think of the Manhattan Project or all these like fancy names, you know. Um, I'm working on something called the Restore Fauquier County Project. And what, what I want to do with it is sort of give some of these ideas a platform. It's an easily accessible website. And I want to be able to have, you know, drop cards and sort of point people to the site so that they can see what does it mean to be a free man? What does it mean to be, to, to, what does liberty actually mean? What does it look like? What, what is our position and how, how do we get out of this humanistic tangled mess? And so we'll have some, some points of, of consideration. Hopefully, if the Lord leads, someday um, somebody in this room will, you know, potentially if you run for office, this could be a platform builder. Um, these are the issues. These are how we see it. This is what we want to do. And stop putting forward candidates who are a bunch of slimy, you know, no spine in their body to be found candidates. Someone like a Dan Fisher. Why is there one of him? Why? And we settle for the Corey Stewarts of the world. I'm sure he's a great person. But we settle. We, we settle for this garbage, and we don't actually have and do the hard work of, I mean, we're, we're fighting against so many things. It seems overwhelming. I imagine the 11 disciples felt the same way when Jesus said to go disciple the nations. All of them? I wonder if there's a side conversation. Did he, did he mean all the nations? He, yeah, he said all. I don't know how that's going to happen. See, we, we have to continue to seed the message of reconstruction in our culture by whatever means we have before us. Whatever means. That's you, moms, and your relationships with other moms. That's you, dads, while you're at work, and your relationship with other dads. Men, women, all of us being involved. Children, this is your legacy. We want to pass the baton to you so that you can grab your sword and go to fight. We're not raising a bunch of wimps. Boys, girls, you are warriors in the gospel. We need you. So hopefully this particular project we'll have ready to launch in January 1, and I would ask that you pray for that. Pray for that. 
So friends, we, we, we have a lot of work to do. Um, we cannot get distracted. We, we do not have time to be lazy. We don't have the time. Peace time will be the millennial kingdom and when the nations are discipled. And you can kick back in your ottoman and have a beer for the glory of God. Now is not necessarily that time. You, you can do that, but you better know that we're in a, we're in a war. We, we don't have time to be lazy. We don't have time to be selfish. We, don't, we just don't have the time. So we must be the first. Here's my challenge to you. We have to be the first in the repentance line. Because Jesus is Gideon, Jesus is the valiant warrior, and we need to follow his rule. And it starts with you as an individual, it starts with each of your families, and it starts with this ecclesia. And then it moves on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you in this assembly because your son Jesus is on the throne and ruling and reigning over the nations. Because of this fact, we are humbled and absolutely honored to serve in this battalion. Father, your patience with us, we acknowledge that tonight. You have been patient with a disobedient church, and we readily acknowledge that oftentimes we've been the ones that are dragging our feet. There have been innumerable times that we've lacked repentance, so we come to you knowing that forgiveness is, is really, truly available to those, to those who ask. And so we ask tonight. We do this by faith because you promise to cleanse us from unrighteousness when we do confess. Father, the humanists seem to be winning and we continue to see your name profaned. Be jealous, most high God. Be jealous for your name and humble the arrogant. And we ask and pray that your son would be honored here in this town, in this region, in this nation. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.